0: around 20 million people. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The U.S. economy grows four percent in the second quarter, much better than expected. The Fed stands pat, saying there's still a lot of slack in the labor market, and Argentina defaults on its debt. Well, a selective default, in the parlance of Standard and Poor's. Also, Alibaba is reportedly interested in Snapchat to the tune of ten billion dollars. And the HKMA intervenes again. It's almost every day now, and it's in the billions of U.S. dollars. Do you understand it? Should you care? Well, we'll uh, be discussing all of these stories with our analysts coming up in a few short minutes. To get us started, a little food for thought. We are not, despite what we say about the inflation indicator, we are not reaching our target yet. So we're not ready to do anything. That's the Fed's statement, as interpreted by Bloomberg's Mike McKee. And a little tease here from Mesero's Diane Swank.
2: I think the important thing to remember about this Fed is the core of the Fed is gradualist, good good, not, but not good enough. And more importantly, although we're going to see a lot of noise from those hawks before the end of the year, I think a lot more dissents before the end of the year, I think it's important to remember the voting committee next year is significantly more dovish and leans towards raising rates later rather than earlier.
1: So there, there was uh, one of the uh, voting members who didn't go along with the decision, a dissent, as it's called. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, uh, and uh, more discussion about the Fed. If you don't like, st- um, you know, commentary about the Fed, you're probably not going to like this program because there's going to be quite a bit. But also, is Snapchat worth ten billion dollars? This being Alibaba,
3: it might open the doors to Snapchat in China in the ways that some sort of Chinese blessed companies are allowed to do business in China where companies like Facebook and Google are not.
1: So that's Corey Johnson of Bloomberg. A little discussion on that later in the program, and we'll also feature it in our Tech in 2 at about 8.45. Our guests on the show this morning include Andrew Kosser of DZ Bank on Market News, including most of the above. Also, Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting will be along, and Tom Gaffney from Jones Lang LaSalle. He'll be along to discuss the impact of property or on property from Hong Kong's retail sales. And we'll be getting the latest Hong Kong retail sales this afternoon at 4.30. Consensus, by the way, is for the number to be down 5.1% for June. From last year, here's how markets are turning now. In Australia, the uh, ASX 200 is down three points at 5611. Seoul is flat, uh, moved to the downside of just less than one point. Japanese stocks, though, are higher. The dollar yen is at 102.84. The euro is at a dollar 33. So we see a pretty significantly weaker euro now against the dollar over where we were say two weeks ago, and the pound is now trading at 13 Hong Kong dollars and 10 cents okay some of the news flow and then bringing in the guests on wall street stocks were little changed but with a slightly upward bias for the broadest indicator better than expected economic growth was offset by weaker earnings and the fed's decision to keep on tapering as you heard in our headline the fed stood pat more now from mike mckee they upgraded their forecast, sort not of, their forecast, but their assessment of the economy, uh, changing some of the tenses and adding a few adjectives, but all in all, a little bit brighter view, but they don't want to give the impression that all is well, and we're about to start raising rates. So they throw in the lines about excess labor market slack. In other words, we are not, despite what we say about the inflation indicator, we are not reaching our target yet, so we're not ready to do anything. Data showed GDP rose at the annual rate of 4% in the second quarter. That was pretty significantly higher than what was expected, and GDP was revised to 2.1% in the first quarter from 2.9%. It all seemed to confirm the Fed's view that a first quarter contraction was transitory. However, the Fed is still concerned about labor. Uh, the significant
3: underutilization of labor resources, the suggestion that there's still slack out there, how highly placed it is in the statement itself within that economic uh, graph, yet they still put the wink and the nod, if you will, the acknowledgment about inflation later down. They know those hawks around the table. The Charlie Fossers, are making their case around the table. They've acknowledged that. But uh, Janet Yellen clearly and a majority of this uh, FOMC still believe that there's work to be done, and uh, it is not yet mission accomplished.
1: And if you're a dedicated listener to this program, you will have heard uh, me bring up this point with Michael Kurtz yesterday morning. What about housing? Because housing hasn't been that solid. Well, Diane Swank from Mesero Financial says housing is also holding the Fed back.
2: I think it's also important, the housing issue. The housing issue is something Janet Yellen really went into in the Q&A with regard to her testimony on what on the economy. Housing has been perplexing to the Fed. That last year's taper tantrum and the rise in rates and the reaction to housing was much more dramatic and shows some fragility in the economy, and they're nervous about that. And I think that's important to keep in mind as well.
1: Again, there was one dissent. It was Charles Plosser from the Fed, uh, Philadelphia Fed uh, uh, Bank. And uh, he simply said that he didn't like the language that was in there. And he, in particular, would like to see the considerable period. So, in other words, in the Fed statement, they've been saying that rates would stay low for a considerable period. He doesn't like it. He'd like to see it out. In the end, the S&P 500 rose less than 0.1% to 1970. The Dow Jones Industrial Average slid 31 points to 16,880. And there was a pretty big spike up in bond yields. Uh, The 10-year note, uh, the yield on that uh, jumped about nine basis points up to 2.55%. Let's say good morning to our first guest, Andrew Kosser, Chief Market Strategist for Capital Markets Asia DZ Bank. Andy, good morning. Good morning to you. So first, the Fed, uh, obligatory, I guess. Uh, It's good news for us in Hong Kong, I suppose, uh, that we will see interest rates probably lower for longer. Do you agree?
4: Actually, I think we won't see them being lower for longer. Okay. I, th- I think we'll see the Fed keeping policy on hold for the remainder of this year, but come the start of 2015, it would be by no means impossible for a good set of data releases over a period of two to three months to start the Fed, changing its language and indicating that they'll be raising rates in early summer 2015. Okay,
1: so, so and that- that's kind of consensus, though, at the moment, isn't it, about the middle of next year?
4: That is consensus, but I think the consensus has drifted back from July-August towards a May-June time frame now, and if you had a good run of data for a period of three, four months, that could easily become a little bit earlier.
1: So you think that the economy apparently then is improving faster than than others. Uh, we did see a nice uh, 4% print for the second quarter that was better than expected. But what about all those comments about housing is sort of holding holding the economy back and uh, the labor market's not not there yet.
4: Housing has been relatively weak over the last several months, but I don't really think that the housing market is going to be the key factor that drives Fed decision-making process.
1: Okay, we got those phones that have to go off the table, put them on the floor or in the back pocket. Uh, you see, um, we've got some guests in our Admiralty studios and Peter and I are up here at, uh, at, uh, BH broadcasting house. Uh, so that sounds good. The phones are gone. Um, so you don't think housing is a, is a very big deal. Do you think that wages this week uh, will show, uh, something on the order of a significant pickup? Is that also part of your thesis? The wage growth in the
4: United States economy has been very, very moderate so far and the, The Fed will be keeping a close eye on this indicator over the coming months. I'm expecting a relatively subdued pace of wage growth on Friday, but if you read the comments in the uh, beige book when it comes out every six weeks, that indicates that skill shortages are driving up wages in certain selected sectors, and the Fed is not going to be too worried about wages until that increase in pay is more widespread than just certain selected skilled labour sectors.
1: So as a strategist, would you advise investors to trade any differently after uh, digesting the Fed story overnight? I think the
4: GDP and the Fed story overnight is a good time for investors to be reviewing their positioning and their holding. And something that was more interesting as well to add to the mix, at the beginning of this week, there were some numbers out that indicated that quite a few professional investors are moving out of equity, U.S. equity funds in general, both the domestic and the international ones, and out of high-yield bond funds. And that's an indicator to me that the more sophisticated investors are starting to reduce their exposure to relatively risky assets, and I think that's a good guideline for
1: smaller investors as well. Do you think investors out here, though, might be cheered by the much stronger GDP number and that it will be better for trade? And we sort of uh, move and groove on trade a lot in uh, the Asia-Pacific. Uh, is that a better story in a sense than perhaps the, the worry that some people will be you know, worried about higher interest rates, thus pulling out of equity and high yield?
4: Some people may be looking at the headline GDP number as being a great story, as far as trade is concerned. But when you look, start to look at the breakdown of the GDP number yesterday, which was indeed very strong, a large part of that was down to stock building. So it's not so quite building, as good building as up, for, uh,
1: building up inventories. Indeed, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean final sales that great. Exactly. Okay. What about uh, gold? Gold has been slipping. You know, we were back um, under thirteen hundred dollars now, twelve ninety-five seventy. Does that tell you a story at all
4: it tells an interesting story insofar as you're at a stage when the u.s economy is improving the eurozone economy is anything but and you have geopolitical risk in the shape of iraq ukraine sanctions on russia but the gold price hasn't really responded in its traditional manner by advancing considerably so i think investors are relatively relaxed about extreme risk and therefore they're not buying gold in significant quantities at the present.
1: If gold edges lower, does that mean that normality is coming back to the Western markets and economies?
4: I think the gold market is such a small part of most investors' holdings that it wouldn't give a signal like that. So it
1: doesn't mean that much. No. Uh, it's just that, you know, in the past, a lot of people were buying gold because they were fearful of, you know, a breakdown in the fiat money system. And and um, it, it, it seems like if things are getting back to normal, that's less of a concern. Thus, why would I want to buy a non-yielding asset?
4: The logic behind buying gold in terms of concern about fiat money is a perfectly reasonable one. But at the moment, the system seems to be holding together quite nicely. Thank you.
1: Okay, so I know you have to go pretty soon. Uh, Give me some of your best ideas. What do you really like at the moment?
4: Really like at the moment? I think the currency moves look quite interesting with the euro having come off and we think it's got further downside scope in the short term. The pound looks as if its best days are behind it for this year, and that's another one that could soften against the U.S. dollar. In the days and months ahead, even though the Bank of England is starting to make hints about raising rates so you in the long, medium term. Long,
1: long the dollar would be a good solid trade for you?
4: I, I think that's a reasonable position to have uh, heading into the, the autumn, yes.
1: Anything having to do with Hong Kong and China? I, I, I know that uh, you kind of specialize in currencies. I, I headlined uh, you know, that the HKMA was intervening again. It's been every day this week, and it's probably been eight or ten times now in total to keep the Hong Kong dollar from appreciating past the 7.75 um strong bound of the convertibility um, range. Does that really mean much to you, or do you agree with somebody like Jake Vanderkamp who says it's just kind of round-trip money from China? Don't worry about it.
4: I have to say I don't see that as being a significant factor for people here to be worrying themselves about.
1: And why? A a strong currency is a good thing.
4: A strong currency helps keep inflationary pressures low, and also the HKMA has got a very good track record in defending the peg in either direction, so it's not wise to bet against the HKMA.
1: Okay, thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Appreciate coming in, and uh, best of luck uh, for the rest of the day and the early start. Uh, And thank you for joining us. That's Andrew Kosser, Chief Market Strategist, Capital Markets Asia. I understand that we have some uh, difficulties with our transmitter uh, now and that normal broadca- broadcasting service is a bit unstable. This is particularly with our BBC signal on our on our uh, DAB uh, 34 channel. And uh, you'd probably be listening to me now on the Terrestrial channel, and we're not seeing too much of a difficulty there. But uh, our, our DAB broadcasting, which, of course, is our digital service, uh, both 33 for our RTHK Radio 3 and 34, uh, the BBC. World Service are experiencing some difficulties now. Well, the time is 17 minutes after 8 o'clock. You're listening to Money for Nothing. <laughs> very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us here on the program. We've been looking at the Fed so far this morning and the much stronger growth in the United States. Uh, and another story that caught a lot of investors' attention overnight, Standard & Poor's declaring Argentina in default after the government missed a deadline for an interest payment. The South American country couldn't pay some $539 million that was owed to bondholders. Bloomberg's Lisa Kohlhotker was following late meetings between creditors and the government.
2: Well, it's not good news. That much is clear. I mean, there had been some optimism that the two sides would reach an agreement because for the first time, representatives of these hedge fund holdout bond investors and the Argentine government got together last night in their law office of the mediator, mediating the dispute, and they actually spent quite a few hours together yesterday and were together. When did they start? I
1: heard they were there until midnight.
2: They were there late.
1: They met late and they didn't come to a decision, but those talks will continue. And if that is the case and a deal is done, then Standard & Poor's may change its declaration of putting Argentina into a selected default. Well, Snapchat is in talks, according to people in the know, as quoted by Bloomberg. Snapchat is in talks to raise money from Alibaba Group, and the valuation being considered is about $10 billion. That's more than three times what Facebook had offered Snapchat earlier. More now from Bloomberg's Corey Johnson.
3: One is the size of Snapchat. Snapchat. I just got some numbers from ComScore that say in June, Snapchat had about 27 million users. That compares to 72 million to Instagram. So it's enormously popular. You know, about a third the size of Instagram already. Uh, and so, the, and there are a lot of messages. Uh, numbers I saw from February from Mary Meeker suggests they're doing 1.5 billion messages a day. So it's it's there are a lot of active use, a lot of users. Users who aren 't paying anything for it, nor neither are they seeing any ads, you would imagine that might be a revenue stream the company would pursue i 'm not arguing for this valuation. But the other thing that's different is that by this being Alibaba, it might open the doors to Snapchat in China in the ways that some sort of Chinese-blessed companies are allowed to do business in China where companies like Facebook and Google are not. And that could actually make this business a lot more value simply by, uh, by the fact that it is an investment from Alibaba. If we were to allow Snapchat to exist in China because of the
1: Alibaba investment, Snapchat becomes more valuable. More on this story at 8.45 with Angelina Draper in our Tech in Two segment. And Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting joins us now on the program. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Brian. You probably don't seem the type that you'd be a Snapchat uh, kind of guy. I, I'm more an Instagram guy. Okay. Well, that's good. Good uh, well, that brings to mind Twitter. Then, did you uh, scrutinise closely the Twitter numbers? And uh, it's very interesting. These businesses have been created out of nothing over the past ten years, and they're yeah. now worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Yum, yup. And
5: interestingly, both uh, Twitter and Facebook, since uh, Janet Yellen recommended shorting them a couple of weeks ago in one of her statements, oh, yeah. have, have, have rallied quite considerably. Yeah. So Yellen Capital. A, yes. Yellen
1: capital suffers a <laughs> setback.
5: <laughs> so, it's, um, but um, I think you know Twitter in particular. I mean, it's re- it's it's results. I think we're very much focused on the revenues, the growth in revenues, the growth in number and of users, users, users um, yeah. which was the reason why we saw the the, the surge in the, the, the stock price over the last sort of couple of days. And it, it all seems to be about how do you value you know, revenue per user? And, and you know, it seems to be the metric that's used for Facebook, for Twitter, for you know, for a whole range of these social media um, sort of companies, even though you know, at the bottom line in, in many cases, you know, it's still a, a struggle, particularly for companies like Twitter.
1: What's quite interesting is that they're both very unique. Uh, those two you cited. Facebook really doesn't have a direct competitor. I suppose you could say Twitter is in a sense a competitor, but it's very different, uh, kind of business. I mean, the business model is different and also the, just the actual business output is so different. Twitter is very unique and so is Facebook. In today's day, to really make it big in tech, do you need to be, you know, singularly unique? I, I think in some ways, you, I think in some ways you do, and you also need to get to,
5: to grips with the mobile sort of aspect of the business. I mean, this is where Facebook has, has really made great strides over the last sort of couple of quarters in mobile advertising. Something that it said you know a year ago was quite difficult and quite a challenge um, for it, but it seems to have seems to have cracked that. So yes, you do need to be you know a critical size, but in particular, you need to have a mobile platform, which is where a lot of the new users are, are coming from.
1: So what are you looking out for the most now, Um, if we could switch a little bit away from uh, technology? But looking at Hong Kong, China, there's been a lot of uh, action here. So many interesting stories. You've got Alibaba coming up. You've got this HKMA intervention, uh, which... You know, our earlier guest Andrew Kosser, said it's not that significant because it's a good thing. It's nice that people want your currency. Um, however, it's it's happening in a in a very quick way now. There's a lot of money that's flooded in, and people are trying to figure out what is it coming here for. And I, I actually think it is significant, um, and I think it's significant for, for a couple
5: of reasons. I mean, first of all, if you look at the history of the uh, of the currency peg, this was enacted back in 1983 when you know there was a lot of turmoil in the in the in the currency markets out here, and, and and, uh, and the stock markets as well. But the thing is, the US and the Hong Kong economies have just changed so dramatically since 1983 to where we are now. So Hong Kong is now one of the world's richest economies. It runs a budget surplus, government debt is um, sort of minimal. So it's actually the currency should be stronger than it actually is. Yeah. Um, but the problem is it can't be because of this peg. So, you know, we're having to see now, you know, the HKMA in defending the peg and buying US dollars, um, selling Hong Kong dollars. So in, in a sense, does this justify the high housing prices? Well, this this is one of the reasons why it's happening because, you know, the purchasing power of the Hong Kong dollar is being artificially uh, suppressed by the peg. So it actually means Hong Kong residents have to pay far more um,
1: in goods and services than, than they really should. And the currency can't change, so it can't uh, work as a kind of yeah, uh, yes. release valve. And so other things have to go either up or down. You know, we had yeah. the opposite problem yeah. in the Asian financial crisis. Thus, we had a big drop in housing because that was was the gas being let out of the balloon now it's the, on the other side as you say and a good
5: th- and you know and a good example of that is staple items like food 90% of which is imported so as a result of the peg you know people have to pay higher prices for for food than they probably really should if the currency was allowed to float um sort of freely and it's part of the reason i think why you are also seeing some of the the political problems in Hong Kong that we have at the moment which you know include unaffordable property a widening sort of income gap between the rich and the poor a lot of bargain hunting Chinese mainlanders coming here and and you know and flooding the shops. These are all the you know in some ways these are all linked to the fact that the
1: currency hey, can't reflect the. It's uh, the economy. one of the reasons we created this program. It's the economy, <laughs> stupid. Um, you know, if you look at a government that's in distress, most of the time it's because the economy is not performing well.
5: Yeah, yeah, and and you know the irony is actually here. You know, the the economy is performing well, mm. but the the currency, which is a sort of an automatic stabilizer in many ways, is um is constrained and it's constrained at a level that. We was created in a time when circumstances were very, very different from where they are now.
1: We all know this and we all understand that there are costs as well as benefits to something like this. We've had a stable currency and that's a a great thing. But do you think that um, the peg has outlived its usefulness and it should go now? I I
5: think in some ways it has. And the thing that's starting to change that are the political issues. I mean, you're right, it's it's created a great deal of stability in Hong Kong and that's good. But you you can still have stability with a currency that reflects where the you know where the economy really is at at the moment, and a, an appreciating currency, providing it's sort of in an
1: orderly manner, um, can still be a stable um, sort of currency. Is it a negative at the moment uh, that the HKMA is having to do this? Um, you know, other than some of the points that you've made, does it carry a lot of concern for the average person?
5: Well, I suppose it, in some ways it's a technical issue in that, you know, the HKMA is expanding its balance sheet in order to do this. It's having to, you know, it's having to buy US dollars, sell Hong Kong dollars, and as a result, its balance sheet is exploding sort of rapidly. Mm. I don't think the ordinary person in the street follows too much, you know, the, the, the size of the HKMA balance sheet. But what they do notice is, you know, property prices, food prices, these are the things that, you know, really affect them, even if they don't necessarily link that um, to the, to the currency. Peg, but maybe um, you know there is starting to become more of a realization that this could be part of the uh, the issue that's causing their problems. Is there a
1: very good way to play it as an investor?
5: Well, I mean the best way to play it is to open a, a bank account in Hong Kong and hold Hong Kong dollars. I think. Um, I mean, I think at the moment, you know, you wouldn't want to bet against a, a Hong Kong dollar
1: um, uh, appreciation. I mean, Does that it, all change when rates change?
5: Well, if you know, there is a there is a big. Um, dichotomy at the moment going on in, in the world over between, you know, the, the bond markets view of the world and the stock markets view of the world. I mean, if you look at bond markets, you know, they're, they're trading, yields are trading at multi-century lows in some cases we're not just mm-hmm. talking at decade lows you know we're talking in france germany italy hundreds straight, of years
1: hundreds of years of yeah. the dutch dutch bonds are trading at 500 year lows two years ago we had a crisis in europe and bond yields were shooting higher and and uh, sovereigns were you know having to pay seven yep. eight nine ten percent even to get money now those things are down around two and a half percent
5: so this is sort of if you look at it on a sort of risk basis it's basically pricing in you know a really really dismal view of the global economy, uh, maybe pricing in, you know, some geopolitical macroeconomic events that could be pretty nasty, but
1: on the corally of that, if you look at But the low yields are not pricing that in. High yields would be pricing in trouble of the sovereign, right? Low yields mean that, hey, everything's okay. They can only pay two and a half percent and get 10-year money.
5: Yeah, but at the same time, equity markets are pricing in, you know, a euphoric, um, you know, sort of perception of the world economy. Something – one of them has to be wrong. They are now so far divergent that either the bond markets globally or the stock markets globally have to be wrong. One of Clearly, these is it's gonna... the
1: bond market It's wrong.
5: <laughs> well, if you look mm-hmm. at – you know, maybe yesterday, if you look at the evidence from the US, then you would say, you know, maybe the stock markets are right and, you know, the bond markets are too low. However, then if you look at economic data out of Europe and Japan – they tend to suggest that maybe the bond markets are going yeah. right. Maybe they're both wrong, and we're going to meet somewhere
1: in the middle. You <laughs> guys are in a peculiar position because you want the Fed to, to get back to normalcy, raise interest rates. You know, completely finish the taper. If it were your decision, you'd do yeah. the, the the final twenty five tomorrow, yes. wouldn't you? Abs- yeah. Absolutely, right. But then, but then again, you you note that the bond markets seem to be saying that things are not really all that great. Economies are still struggling. People's wages haven't gone up. Uh, you know, it's hard to raise prices if you're a if you're a company. You have a really discount to keep getting business in. So how do you kind of explain that? On the one hand, you think, hey, things, are, you know, the Fed shouldn't be doing this. Um, it's, things are getting back to normal. But on the other hand, you note that, no, they're not normal.
5: This is Fed-induced. I mean, this is, you know, the the reason why this is happening is because we now have a U.S. economy that's growing 4% in the last quarter and interest rates at zero. So <laughs> something's um, you know, kind of weird Something there. is wrong somewhere. And, you know, the amount of money that has been pumped into the global system by central Banks around the world is about ten trillion dollars now, so it's forcing, you know, investors to reach for yield, and you know, reach for yield in all sorts of unusual sort of places at the moment, because you know they can finance these trades almost for nothing. Um, You know, there's a a lot of free money around. So, would you
1: you advise people to get rid of their high yield now? Oh, absolutely,
5: absolutely. I mean, and we're starting to see that actually. We're starting to see, you know, um, sort of junk bond yield start to move back up in the last sort of couple of weeks. We've seen, and we can see some sharp moves even in government bond prices. I mean, look at last night in the US. You know, we saw, you know, a nine basis point move in the 10 year. It's now back to where it was in, um, you know, it's the biggest move since November 2013 in percentage terms. So, you know, when we try and start to normalize this, it can produce some very sharp moves in both bond markets and equity markets, which we're seeing
1: around the world. Okay, Peter, stay with us. Uh, coming up to the news now here at 8.30, and we'll continue. We've got a lot in the second half hour. Uh, as mentioned, we've got our tech update. We also have Tom Gaffney, head of retail at Jones Lang LaSalle. We'll be talking about uh, retail and its impact on property here. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about um, some of the lead news stories as well. So just briefly, the Nikkei's up 98 points. Australia's up eight points, and Seoul up a couple of points. It seems that investors like the idea of a faster-growing U.S economy in the weather today <clears throat> mainly fine very hot there will be some haze a bit later maximum temperature about 34 so that is very hot sunny periods in the next few days and some showers expected as well the news coming up next R-T-H-K, Radio 3. it is 8:31. the news with samantha butler
0: the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has condemned Israel's shelling of a UN school in Gaza where thousands of Palestinians were taking shelter as outrageous. Mr Ban said nothing was more shameful than attacking sleeping children. He demanded accountability for the attack, which killed 15 and wounded many more. Chris Gunness is a spokesman for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency in Gaza. He said there could be no excuse for the Israeli army's actions.
4: We had warned the Israeli army 17 times. We told them exactly where the school was. We told them it was filling up. It was full with over 3,000 people who'd taken refuge for the fighting. And don't forget, these are people who've been told to move by the Israeli army. In spite of all of that, the school was hit. Children sleeping next to their parents on the floor of a classroom in a UN-designated area were hit. That
6: is unacceptable.
0: The U.S. has also condemned the shelling. An Israeli government spokesman said the country would apologise if it was proved it was errant fire from Israel but said its forces were being attacked from the area. For the second consecutive day, more than 100 Palestinians have been killed. Liberia has announced emergency measures to combat the spread of the deadly Ebola virus. All schools are being closed. Non-essential government workers have been placed on 30-day compulsory leave and some communities have been placed in quarantine. Here's the BBC's Tom Fesi. The government is trying to cut people's movement inside the country, hoping that infected people
5: can be identified and treated. Security forces have been ordered to enforce these new measures. Meanwhile, people have reportedly protested the construction of a new isolation unit, forcing health workers to treat up to 20 patients at their home. It is unclear how the government will manage to enforce its plan in a context of ongoing suspicion and fear.
0: You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. The time is 8.33. And some of our top stories this morning, the U.S. economy growing 4% in the second quarter. That was much better than expected. The Fed stood pat, although it did continue its taper, buying another $10 billion, or rather um, um, deciding to uh, change by $10 billion, the amount that it purchases in terms of Treasury, so $10 billion less. Argentina is put into selective default by Standard & Poor's. And we've also have been talking a little bit about the HKMA and its intervention in the currency market. Again, uh, And really to keep the Hong Kong dollar from getting stronger. And also this interesting story about Alibaba reportedly having an interest in the tech firm Snapchat and its interest uh, values Snapchat at something like $10 billion. So more discussion on business and finance in a little bit. Now we continue with our look at news, now in greater detail. HSBC has told three Muslim organizations in Britain that it's closing their accounts. One of the organizations, the Finsbury Park Mosque in North London, described the move as Islamophobic. HSBC denied that the groups are being targeted for any kind of racial or religious reasons. RTHK's Mike Weeks asked London-based correspondent Gavin Gray what reason HSBC has given for closing these accounts.
7: Well, they're basically saying that these accounts fall outside the and I quote, risk appetite. They say they've been uh, uh, undergoing a series of reviews and effectively terminated relationships with businesses and personal customers in over 70 countries. And this follows a fine of almost two billion uh, American dollars in 2012 over poor money laundering controls. So while the bank is being very, very careful to say this is nothing about uh, basing a decision on religion, it is not racist, they are saying that they have a a risk factor with every account and that, quite simply, some of these accounts are too risky for them.
1: One of
5: the organisations targeted was closely linked to the radical cleric Abu Hamza, who's now in prison in the US.
7: That's right. The Finsbury Park Mosque is one of those. That's in North London. and uh, Now, that does a lot of charitable work, but uh, it wasn't that long ago until 2005 that the mosque was run by a man called Abu Hamza. Now, in May of this year, he was convicted of terrorism offenses in the United States. The uh, mosque says it has no link now to him or the radicalization that he introduced. But of course some uh, say, well, you know, hang on a minute, Uh, actually uh, the banks kept supplying, as it were, uh, funds or assistance or support to uh, these various institutions throughout that time. So it's about time they acted, yes. The uh, Finsbury Park mosque is is one of those that's been targeted, Um, but uh, uh, even the local MP to that area, Jeremy Corbyn, says that he's worked with the mosque since it was built. They do a lot of charitable work, and he says he's shocked and appalled by the decision of HSBC. Uh, having said that, of course, uh, you know, along with the Cordoba Foundation, uh, HSBC is imperfectly entitled to uh, suddenly say it would terminate a contract or terminate a bank account, uh, quite simply because uh, uh, it no longer considers the, uh, the relationship to be sound. There is an underlying factor as well, I think, with some of these accounts, Mike, uh, and that is that a number of charities, although they are listed as formal charities, are raising money uh, for humanitarian purposes in places like Gaza and Syria. The problem is that there's a fear that some of that money is ending up in the hands of militants.
1: Our correspondent in London, Gavin Gray. The Labour Party leader here at home, Lee Chuck yen has called for a review of the political party law to ensure transparency over political donations. Mr. Lee is one of five pan-democratic lawmakers who've been asked to respond to public complaints about large donations that they are said to have accepted without declaring them. Mr. Lee does not deny receiving money from media tycoon Jimmy Lai.
8: The logical rule on uh, declaration of interest is that if there's a person. Or personal interest in it, then you have to declare. Um, my understanding is, uh, when I receive the money on behalf of the um, uh, uh, Labour Party, um, uh, the, the 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 money uh, is for the Labour Party, and I have no personal interest uh, in the uh, whole donation and uh, uh, over the whole. Uh, and and also I. I, I uh, De facto, do, do not re, uh, have, have not um, derived any uh, any benefit from it. So uh, my understanding is, in that case, well, I, I don't have to declare uh, because it's not my personal, uh, it's not a personal donation to me.
3: Are you prepared to provide documents to Legco to support uh, your uh, assertion there that the money went uh, to the party and that you were just acting on the party's behalf?
8: Yeah, I'm. I'm ready to um, uh, show the, to the document to the uh, committee because, uh, of course, I'm willing to cooperate with the committee, and, uh, uh, and I believe that uh, the committee uh, will have to look into the, uh, uh, the, the, the rules and to see whether uh, uh, you know, receiving donation on behalf of a party has to be declared. I think it's a good thing that uh, this can be clarified and so that there can be guidance for all
3: logical member in the future. Would it be better, though, for donations which are intended for a political party to be made directly to the party itself rather than through somebody connected with the party?
8: Yeah, on uh, you know, lo- uh, looking back, of course, uh, now, uh, I think, of course, it's better to have it, uh, co- the donation com- uh, to the party than... That that would really don't uh, have any uh, uh, um, um, implication on the personal uh, 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 the person concerned. Then I think it's of course is better. So uh, I I I think for, for us uh, I think to for the future it would be uh, more advisable to for any donation to directly uh, 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 to direct to the party.
1: Labour Party leader Lee Yan. The time is now 20 minutes before 9 o'clock. Ebola has now claimed nearly 700 lives since the outbreak in West Africa began earlier this year. Many doctors and nurses are among the victims. The worst affected countries are Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia, which has just announced the closure of all schools and the quarantining of several communities. Liberia's information minister, Louis Brown, has called for assistance from the international community.
8: We need all the help we can get on our own. None of us in the three affected countries can cope with this matter. We need uh, sanitation experts. We need those with uh, experience in having fought uh, hemorrhagic fever to come and assist us. And we need personal protective equipment. We need everything that uh, can be used to fight this.
1: In Hong Kong, a leading virologist says that there's no need to panic over the Ebola outbreak. Professor Malik Peres from the Hong Kong University School of Public Health was speaking after a newspaper had said that a woman who fell ill after visiting Kenya was suspected of having Ebola. The government dismissed the report but has announced measures to guard Hong Kong people against the deadly virus. Professor Peres spoke with RTHK.
9: Ebola is not a very highly contagious infection, such as influenza, for example, which is spread uh, through coughing, sneezing through the air. Um, Of course, there's an outbreak going on in West Africa, in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. But uh, by and large, uh, transmission occurs through very close contact, um, either within hospital settings or within family settings, which is body fluids and secretions coming into contact with uh, uh, the, the the. uh, another person's eyes or mucous membranes or cuts uh, in their hands. Um, so it, it is not that contagious. However, um, you, you need to have good infection control precautions to, to prevent transmission, and this is exactly what the hospital authority has highlighted. Uh, and secondly, at the moment, uh, the cases largely are in three countries in West Africa, that is Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And fortunately, there isn't that much traffic from that part of the world to Hong Kong. But of course, um, there has been one case where a a person from Liberia, a a patient, got onto a plane and ended up in Nigeria and, and died in Lagos. So clearly, Hong Kong being a travel hub has to be careful.
1: That's Professor Malik Paris. The hospital authority says anyone who comes down with fever within three weeks of arriving back here from Guinea, Liberia, or Sierra Leone will be sent to Princess Margaret Hospital for rapid blood tests. The time is now 17 minutes before 9 o'clock, and this is Money for Nothing. Well, you may have noticed around town uh, quite a number of empty storefronts. uh, all throughout places like Happy Valley and Causeway Bay and uh, Wan Chai and elsewhere. And are starting to see a few more of these. And Cushman and Wakefield says that there are 128 shops in Causeway Bay that remain vacant this month. That's up some 56% from 81 back in December. Yet rents still haven't been dropping much. Tom Gaffney, head of retail at Jones Lang LaSalle, Hong Kong, joins us. Tom, good morning. Good morning, Brian. And thank you for being patient and staying with us. Uh, We're in our extended format now of an hour. Uh, So um, it's nice because we have a few minutes that we can talk. Uh, What's actually happening with all of these empty storefronts? Uh, It seems to be going up. Uh, Are the landlords too greedy?
6: What we're seeing, Brian, is uh, essentially the the sales of uh, the retail sector in Hong Kong has contracted uh, for the first time in several years. For the first six months of 2014, we've we saw a decline of just under one percent um, in terms of overall retail sales, and we're largely hit by some of the uh, uh, areas such as watch and jewelry, which are down 20% for the first half of the year. That being said, we're still seeing a lot of the uh, tourists that are coming into Hong Kong that are fueling a lot of these sales still being positive. But to your point, um, yes, you know, retail rents are still holding steady, and as a result, um, I think a lot of uh, brands are feeling the pinch and their margins aren't so good. So, so so
1: what cracks? Do you think that the landlords will lower prices or do you think that um, new businesses will move in and they will pay up?
6: You can look at it in two different ways. Uh, with the vacancy increasing in these secondary locations, it, it does actually pr- propose opportunities for a lot of brands that are continuing to expand and doing quite well and wanting to take up more space as well as new market entrance into hong kong however um, what we will likely see is that the secondary locations within hong kong non-core retail districts will likely see a rental drop between now and the end of the year and that should sort of foresee to continue throughout the years to come however core markets such as central Tsim Sha chui Causeway bay will likely hold steady and in particular malls will likely be the winner over the next six months i just
1: noticed in the paper today that um analysts were saying saying that malls would be suffering in China, but you say that they will hold up okay here.
6: That's right. I mean, if you look at um, the, the, the key malls within Hong Kong, um, they're very well managed, very well uh, laid out, and in particular their tenant mix strategies are very, very strong. As a result, the tourists typically flock to those areas and sales are usually stronger in those locations. Therefore, I think in terms of a rental policy, they will be able to sort of hold steady.
1: So is it a mistake for mall owners or even for... you know, landlords that control an area, like, for instance, High Sand and Causeway Bay, is it a mistake to go with too many, uh, you know, retailers in the same area, like too much luxury? It's just people get saturated.
6: Not particularly. It's all all in terms of supply and demand. And, you know, every retailer, every sector seems to have its day in the in the sun um, at the moment, unfortunately, the you know due to certain changes in policy in China, a slowdown in the sort of wealthy spending tourists coming to Hong Kong. We're seeing more of the day trip type tourists. Typically, a day trip trip type tourist will um, only spend about two and a half thousand Hong Kong dollars, versus okay. say nearly seven thousand Hong Kong dollars of someone that will stay overnight. So a lot of the watch and jewellery sector are suffering because of that. Um, but as a result, brands, you know, in the fast fashion sector, department stores, cosmetics are benefiting greatly from it.
1: Day trip type tourists. You yes. give yourself a tongue twister <laughs> yeah, on the radio. You're a gutsy man. <laughs> um, so investors' ears would have popped up when, you, you know, you're talking about... Uh, at people's day in the sun. Whose day in the sun is it going to be over the next six months?
6: Um, you know, our in-house view is that you know over the next six months, the winners will really be the fast fashion brands. Um, we're seeing a, a diversification in the type of sophistication of the customers that are shopping in Hong Kong. They're so what not is that just like
1: Zara and H H&M exactly, and M. Exactly. Yeah, folks? you know,
6: so your Zara's, your H and M, your Forever Twenty Ones, Marks and Spencers. These are the type of groups that will continue to uh, do very well in Hong Kong and continue to flourish. We're seeing double-digit growth in that sector in the first half of this year and that seems to be continuing month on month whereas a lot of the other sectors are either flat or negative so um for our in-house view is that over the next six months the winners will likely be the fast fashion sector as well as cosmetic
1: how does you know the fed movements overnight and the idea of interest rates possibly going up how does that factor into your view over the next 18 months
6: well, it will probably affect more so um, the single shop owners in these uh, districts in the core markets would have, which would have, you know, probably paid considerable amounts of money for their stores in uh, you know over the last few years. As interest rates grow up, it may put more pressure on them to sort of secure high rentals. But with retailers not willing to bid up the rents anymore, it may force them to either a sell or look to um, take a bit of a haircut on where their rents are wishing to be as at today. So we do see that um, rent in the sort of core uh, secondary locations will likely drop over the next six months.
1: Any indication uh, from some of these uh, recent surveys done, like we see tourist arrivals are up 13.6% or were in the first five months of the year. Mainland visitors still coming here, and apparently from the surveys done, they're still happy. They still enjoy coming to Hong Kong, even though there is a little bit of friction between Hong Kongers and and, uh, mainlanders. But when you look at... um, the patterns of spending from mainlanders versus, say, Europeans and Americans, is it dramatically different?
6: It is. I mean, if you look at Hong Kong as a whole, it's a shopping mecca, and in particular for the, um, the mainland Chinese, you know, there is a lot of benefits to coming to Hong Kong. A, it's easy to access, um, there's the you know the, the difference in the, um, the currency the the product is real there 's no VAT. there's no t- import tariffs, et etc so the products are often cheaper to buy here than they are across the border as a result you know looking at sort of the broader um, fundamentals that you know there 's a lot of uh, variation in sort of accommodation three four five star hotels so you know there 's something for everyone here and as a result uh, there 's a lot of benefits to why we see um, over seventy seven percent of all our tourists coming to Hong Kong are from mainland China.
1: Yeah. All right, Tom, thanks very much for being patient and staying with us uh, here on Money for Nothing. That's Tom Gaffney, head of retail at Jones Lang LaSalle, Hong Kong. Boy, the time is elapsing, it's now ten minutes before nine o'clock.
5: I'm
1: Just a little time to catch our breath and uh, flow into the next segment, our Tech In 2, and we're joined by Angelina Draper. Good morning.
10: Hello there. Hello. The company behind the mobile app for disappearing photo messages, Snapchat Incorporated, is in talks with Alibaba Group Holdings and other investors for a round of financing that could value the startup at $10 billion. Snapchat currently makes no revenue and bewildered investors when the company refused a $3 billion acquisition offer from Facebook last year. Simon Mansell, CEO of TBG Digital, says a tie-up with Alibaba could be huge for Snapchat.
4: If they can take uh, Snapchat out to the one point three billion people that are in China, um, it could be quite a scary prospect for um, the networks which don 't currently have access there. Uh, they already have the investment in Weibo, which you know is not a majority but is also a, a decent stake and so you know, it just gives them a few different bets on Weibo, which is similar to a twitter Facebook. Um, combination and then Snapchat which is a you know slightly different approach with the you know the messages that disappear so I think that it could be it could be huge
10: Just one day after Indian online retailer Flipkart secured $1 billion from investors, Amazon announced plans to invest twice that much in its Indian business. Both companies are fighting for a share of a market estimated to grow to $22 billion by 2018. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said that there was huge potential in India before adding, With this addition of $2 billion, our team can continue to think big, innovate and raise the bar for customers in India. Yelp reported strong second quarter earnings, beating expectations to post revenues of eighty-eight point seventy nine billion excuse me, million dollars and profits of zero point zero four cents a share. Analysts had expected the business review sites to lose three cents a share. Compared to the first six months of the of last year, this year's first half saw revenues rise sixty-three percent. And Hilton Worldwide is launching a mobile app that allows guests to check in and even choose a specific room through a mobile and web based floor plan. Guests will also be able to purchase room upgrades and request special amenities to be delivered to the room. Checking out will also be possible through the app in the future. The company says the digital check in and room selection will be available in over 4,000 hotels worldwide by the end of this year.
1: Angelina Draper with our Tech In 2. It is eight minutes now before nine o'clock. Uh, morning, morning Brew with Phil Whelan coming up uh, just after the news at nine o'clock. Uh, I always tell Phil that I got the brains, the brawn and the looks, and he sort of lost out. But uh, he, of course, sees it differently. So join Phil Whelan with Morning Brew just after the news at nine o'clock. And Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting is still with us here on the program, being patient. Thank you, Peter. So we talked a little bit about the HKMA, the Fed. Um, we ran a report on Argentina. It is in this kind of sovereign Temporary Sovereign Debt Default, the third in three decades. Uh, Is this a big story for international investors or, or not so much? It could be. Um th- this is a strange
5: default because you know Argentina has the money to pay it wants to pay it's deposited the money in the Bank of New York Mellon except a US court order is stopping that being distributed to uh, to the creditors so this is a slightly unusual situation and it's certainly not going to be as catastrophic as the default in 2001 which was you know plunge the economy into recession we had 25% unemployment so this is going to be on the scale of maybe not that important to could be bad the risk is always though that, you know, in, in a world that we live now where the, the, the global financial system is just so interconnected that you can never be quite sure how something like this is going to have an impact on someone somewhere else and cause the, a problem. The butterfly flaps elsewhere. its wings. Yep. Yep. So I, I think, you know, th- I think the holdout investors you know uh, are also in a little bit of a difficult situation because they've been fighting to be paid now for what 13 years and still haven't got any money and their only weapon is actually sort of threatening default but of course once it happens you know they really have no other sort of levers and buttons to push here in order to to get their money so there is an incentive on them as well on the holdouts to really try and come to a deal otherwise the result is they're never going to be paid after you know 13 years of of litigation.
1: So that is a potential problem. Uh, what about Banco Espírito Santo in Portugal? This is also a problem. I mean, BSI is, uh, B B S is the,
5: the largest bank by assets in, uh, in Portugal. And uh, it's, it's quite a complicated structure, but in effect, the th- there are three sort of holding companies above it, which have now all gone into bankruptcy protection um, in Europe. And then last night, after the close, Banco Espirito has revealed a, a $5 billion um, loss and in effect has wiped out its, uh, its capital reserves and its cap- tier one capital ratio has now fallen to 5%, which is below the regulatory minimum of 7%. So it now has to go and raise money um, and it has to go and raise money in what is quite a difficult environment uh, for it, to say, to say the least. And so, again, contagion is a big problem here as well. This is, this is going to be a problem because this is a big bank in, uh, in Portugal I mean, the Portugal, uh, the Portuguese market, the uh, the PSI last night fell almost three and a half percent and is now at nine-month lows. So there is concern in Portugal about what is the effect of a, a large, by Portuguese standards, bank like this, in effect, running into difficulties, and what will be the reaction of uh, depositors, and how is the bank going to go and raise this capital that it needs um, to, to to rebuild its uh, to rebuild its balance sheet again. So this
1: potentially could be a, a you know a problem. Okay, Peter, stay with us, uh, because I'd like to run a little bit more news, and then we can talk a little bit more about uh, some of the um, geopolitical unrest that has been affecting the psyche of investors, or not affecting I mean, that's probably been an even bigger story, is that markets have held up. Uh, we continue now with our news coverage here this morning. The United Nations has condemned Israel in the strongest terms for a deadly attack on one of its schools in Gaza, where Palestinians were seeking shelter. At least 15 people were killed. Later, there was was more bloodshed when a busy market in Gaza was hit. The Israeli government says it's investigating both incidents. Chris Gunness is a spokesman for the main UN relief agency in Gaza. He said that the UN had repeatedly made sure the Israelis knew of the school's location and that civilians were inside.
4: Last night, children were killed as they slept next to their parents on the floor of a classroom in a UN-designated shelter. Children killed in their sleep.
1: This is surely an affront to all of us, a source of universal shame. Today, the world stands disgraced. So what are the Israelis saying? Here's Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner of the Israeli Defense Force.
5: We had mortar fire launched from near the school in that area where there is combat taking place. And there was a response there on the ground in the exchange of fire. Uh, We are still reviewing this incident. So I don't have all of the answers, unfortunately. But this is a situation that we understand at this hour. The Israel Defense Forces does not target UN facilities. Uh, Unfortunately, what we have learned over the last three weeks, that time and time again, um, Hamas terrorists have commandeered UN premises, um, and and in at least three instances they've admitted to having found rockets within their premises. This does not mean that the IDF is targeting them, and I would say we absolutely do not target UN other international
1: organizations operating in the area. I would say quite the contrary. We are operating in order to facilitate their activity. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner of the Israeli Defense Force. And Russia has described as destructive and short-sighted the economic sanctions announced by Washington and Brussels on Tuesday, which will affect entire sectors of the Russian economy. Nevertheless, the G7 Group of Industrialized Nations says that Russia will face further economic sanctions if it continues to support separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine. Peter Lewis is still with me from Peter Lewis Consulting. Uh, have you been a bit surprised that markets haven't reacted more to these geopolitical tensions? I, I think certainly equity markets, definitely. I mean,
5: you know, equity markets have, have been on a tear and, and, you know, have almost behaved as if there are really no geopolitical risks anywhere in the world and that the economy in the world is is looking great. And, cl- and clearly that isn't the case. We have a number of, of flashpoints, uh, you know, at the moment. Russia is certainly one of them. Um, the situation in the Middle East is, uh, you know, is... is is a terrible human tragedy. Um, so there, there are certainly you know things going on in the world that you know that
1: could suddenly come to the fore at any time. But why is it the case that um, it hasn't had a big impact on, say, oil prices, gold, um, other safe haven? assets.
5: Well, I think, you know, liquidity is one of them. Um, you know, there's been so much liquidity flowing into the markets, um, you know, and, and banks sort of balance sheets have been flush with liquidity, that that has really supported all sorts of asset markets, um, you know, and, and, and that money, which is not flowing into the economy, is instead going into, you know, various um, sort of asset classes around the world, equities, bonds, commodities, um, you know, the, the whole lot mm. have been moving up in sync because okay. of this surplus of liquidity. And it's sort of masked what's really going on in the world at the moment
1: okay peter thank you very much peter lewis of peter lewis consulting and that's our show for today just leave you with the weather mainly fine and very hot some haze expected the maximum temperature 34 degrees with light winds the outlook sunny periods and a few showers in the next couple of days morning brew coming up next with phil whelan and the news is next